Bold Stroke for a Wife is a classic because a lot of the humor still feels relevant and accessible to a modern audience. Bold Stroke for a Wife is a classic because you're going to have to cross your legs so hard not to pee your pants. Bold Stroke for a Wife is a classic because the female lead is in on the joke, knows what she wants, is smart, is witty, has agency, and the guy that she's in love with is genuinely deserving of her love. Mic drop. There it is. Boom. This is our history. This is Hello and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon theater podcast. We're your hosts, Mary Candler, Artistic Director of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and a curator of Expand the Canon. And me, Sky Pagan, curator of Expand the Canon and member of the Hedgepig Ensemble. And we're here to introduce you to some awesome plays by women that are classics. Classics. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, a Brooklyn-based company dedicated to reimagining the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at the core. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. That's what we're doing. This play is amazing, isn't it, Sky? This play is so funny. What I had play- forgotten... Oh, what play are we talking about? Yeah, we what are play talking- are we even talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the play we are talking about is Bold Stroke for a Wife by Susanna Santlivra. And it's so funny. Mary and I were talking a few seconds ago before we turned the, the microphones on because we're dum-dums about how it's so easy when you're like, oh, I have to sit down and read this play from the 17th century and I'm gonna, it's going to be long and the language is going to be hard. And then this play is so accessible and so snappy and so funny. And I love reading it. It's amazing. Like the humor has really stood the test of time. It just, you know, you read some old plays and you're like, I get the cadence of this being a joke, but I don't like get it. And it's just like Susanna Saint-Livre. I always say her name weird. Saint-Livre. Saint-Livre. Sorry, Um, Shannon. Yeah, Shannon's French. She's going to kill us. Um, (laughs) It's just so relevant still and it's just very very funny so it's a it's a laugh riot some might say it really is and it's it's so like the thing that i really appreciate is there i mean obviously it's a play written in the 17th century there are some moments of humor that probably would not fly now that maybe would take a tasteful cut or some contextualization but the vast majority of it really does hold up and really is like punching up as opposed to punching down kind of humor, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love that. I like that term. I don't know that I've ever heard that term before, but it is um, all in this very like positive and fun spin. Woo! I also just think, you know, even though this was written quite a while ago, we these archetypes that we're dealing with, I just roll my eyes and I'm like, I still know that person. I know that person. Yes. The thing I love about it, too, though, is they're not like we're I think we're very used to, especially in like traditions of uh, like French farce and comedia and things like that, where the archetypes are like very general. And what I love about the archetypes in this play is they're like kind of weirdly idiosyncratic and specific, but also so recognizable. Like I will write an essay about why this specific character 
called Periwinkle is that guy who went on study abroad in college and will not shut up about it. And it's so funny because you know that guy and he's annoying. <laughs> you do, you do, you do. And there's also like, um, there's a more religious character that I, they they, they make uh, the main character dress up and all I can see is like handmade tail robes slash dresses on these mm-hmm. people. And I'm like, yep, that is the conversation we're having now. Yeah, it really is. And like all the characters are really well-rounded and the sort of central heroes of this play are really likable like you you root for them it feels really like a beautiful ensemble cast because Mm -hmm. for that exact same reason every character is given like a very full sense of self but it's also let's be real this is a star vehicle so what if you've got that like epically charming actor in your group that could just carry this like bonkers funny tour de force performance like this is such a fun role Mm -hmm. and by this i mean fain (laughs) well yes we'll get to that more on that later um it's but the thing i also love is it's like it is a it is a star vehicle for uh a role that would be traditionally male, but there are also the sort of woman love interest character in this play is like really cool in her own right, even though she has a lot less stage time. She's really smart. She knows what she wants. She's funny and articulate and quick witted and in on it. So you have like, even though she has less stage time, she isn't, it isn't like a damsel in distress thing where she has no part in the play. She also sort of does her her uh, share of sleuthing and sneaking as it were and there's like trap doors and like weird disguises and funny voices and like what more could you want this is a costume designer's dream because oh my god the main character dresses up as like 45 characters i mean don't worry they're all in your stock i promise but um it is just like this wig this wig this thing this thing and it's just so fun it stands up better than some of the other comedies that we consider classics and mm. just do it. Just freaking do it. This play's hilarious. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's, it's hilarious. It's well written, it's well structured, and it's really funny. Yeah. That's it. That's the that's the tagline for the that's end. That's the pitch. Just do it. <laughs> dum, dum. If you're looking for a restoration play that tackles the patriarchy, comedically, of course, you've met your match. A star vehicle for a charismatic actor, this Moliere-esque comedy deftly ridicules hypocrisy, greed, hubris, and the absurdity of women's position as property. Anne Lovely has not one, but four bizarre male guardians who must give consent to her marriage. And Colonel Fainwell is determined to win each over through the clever use of disguises. With insightful satire physical comedy, and modern humor, this tight plot keeps an audience in joyful suspense until the final moment. I mean, I want to see this play now. So all that being said, Sky, like, what is this play about? What happens? Well, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Legacy. This play is about a young man named Colonel Fainwell, who... As young men do, who have some financial means, have decided that it is time to get married. And so he's sitting down with his good pal in a bar one night. Sackbutt? Is that Sackbutt? 
No, this is unfortunately not Sackbutt. Sackbutt is the tavern keeper, for those of you who are interested to know who has the best name in the play. Uh, no, this is his bro, Freeman, uh, who's, a, who's a real good, he's a real good one. We like Freeman. He's a good guy. Uh, so anyway, Fainwell is sitting here with his best friend talking about how he wants to get married and how he had this chance meeting with this woman in the city of Bath recently. This wonderful, witty, charming woman named Anne Lovely. Anne Lovely. I know. Very on the nose. And at this, Freeman gasps and is like, oh, no, I know Anne Lovely. She's great. But bro, she is the ward of not one, not two, not three, but four co-guardians. Four co-guardians. Holy smokes. (laughs) All of whom must give their separate consent to any man who wishes to marry her, or she gets none of her finance, her estate that she inherited from her father. Bummer. Um, the reasons why she has these four co-guardians are complicated. Essentially, her father died and wanted to protect her estate uh, by making it as hard as possible for any guy to marry her. She's mad about it. It's a whole thing. And even worse for Anne and for Fainwell, Each of these four guardians is more ridiculous and archetypical than the last. So we got the foppish dandy Mode Love, who loves and obsesses over all things French, goes to parties and masks all the time, and is just a total ditz. We have the shrewd trader Trade Love, obviously, who only cares about trading stocks and making more money for himself. We have the antique collector Periwinkle, who is obsessed with traveling and fetishizing other cultures, despite having never left the country of England, (laughs) and the religious extremist and extremely rigid Quaker Obadiah Prim, who is, he and his wife just are obsessed with controlling Anne and trying to make her dress in a way that they deem appropriate, despite being somewhat hypocritical themselves. So, She's not happy with her situation. She wants to get out. And Fainwell is in love with her and says, I am going to win over these four guys. I'm going to free her. And she's like, all right, if you can do it, I support you. Yes. I love it that there's some consent here. It's like, can I do this for you? Yes, please. Please do this for me. Thanks. Absolutely. That's one of the greatest things about this play is like the the two lovers, Anne and Fainwell, like genuinely get along and are in on this together. Um, so anyway, Fainwell hatches this ridiculous convoluted plan with his various friends where he's going to trick, seduce Khan and just wheedle his way into getting the consent of all of these men separately. So he dresses up as a fancy dandy and pretends to be French to seduce the mode love, the one who's obsessed with the French people. He pretends to be this Dutch trader uh, and swindles the stockbroker out of his money and like holds it hostage like essentially blackmails him um in order to get his consent he has there's this whole ridiculous sequence where like he pretends to be this world traveler and have all these magical cultural artifacts uh including a magic belt that turns him invisible in order to trick the antique collector periwinkle into giving his consent might you call that an invisibelt might you? Could you perhaps please call it an invisible? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> you can move on. Just move Moving on. on. 
uh, and he uh, dresses up as a fellow Quaker um, and pretends to uh, give Anne Lovely a religious awakening in order to trick Obadiah Prim and his wife into giving their consent. Awakening. Wink, wink. Oh my God. (laughs) Here we are. Here we are. (laughs) So through all of these antics through all of these wild plans involving multiple disguises, magic trapdoors, forged wills, blackmail, bad Dutch accents, and of course, the Invisibelt, <laughs> Fainwell finally obtains the consent of each of these foolish guardians and is united with the wonderful and lovely. The guy gets the girl, the maladjusted get their just desserts, and we all get a good laugh. And everyone, or at least Anne and Fainwell, live happily ever after. It's a great play. It's hilarious. One of my favorite lines um, is early in the play. It's the first time we see mm-hmm. Mode Love, and he's trying to describe this guardian situation, and he says, Hmm. I assure you that she has an odd ragu of guardians. That right there is why you should do this play. <laughs> an odd odd I'm going to start saying that about people. That's very useful. Brilliant. Anyways, it's fun. You should do it. Um, and also, like, we should know more about Susanna. Or Susanna. Saint Livre. Should we exactly. move on to my girl, Susanna? So this wonderful play was written by the equally wonderful Susanna Saint-Livre. Saint-Livre, Saint-Livre, Saint-Livre. Sorry, Shannon. <laughs> uh, who was a English writer born in about 1669. And not much is actually known about her early life. So her, we think her father was a dissenter. This is happening during the Stuart Restoration. So her family probably faced a fair amount of political discrimination. Her parents both also died really young, so she ended up being raised by her stepmother. Um, her mother had died first, her father had been married. And uh, there's reason to believe that she suffered some kinds of abuse at the hands of this stepmother, which led her to leave home by the age of 15. Man, we could go down a whole rabbit hole on stepmothers and the classics. It's just like not a good look to be a stepmother. Shout out to the good stepmothers out there. Yes. So there's this wild story of when she first left home around the age of 15, where a young student from Cambridge stumbled across Susanna crying by the side of a road and was so enraptured by her beauty and her sweetness and her general awesomeness that he smuggled her into his dormitory at school where she dressed as a man and attended classes until she had learned enough to move to london and pursue a career yes which is crazy if true the theoretically more likely story of how she first got her start in theater is that she stumbled across a troupe of traveling actors and because she was a young beautiful woman she started making a name for herself playing the breeches role so the young boys and the rosalind tracks the women who dress as men and got into theater that way which is still pretty cool although less wild uh so choose whichever of those stories you like the best i'm gonna choose the first one thank you fair enough i mean the other one's good too though like fine make theater i mean making theater's fun she was married twice by the age of 20, but neither of those husbands lived more than a couple years. Uh, after the death of her second husband, she formally moved to London and began writing because she needed the money. Um, 
she published some books of letters, uh, which were characterized for her witty banter, and she gained a fair amount of renown that way. So with she started writing some plays. Uh, she gained some success. The responses to her work were generally positive, but nothing was really popping. And then in 1705, she wrote The Busybody, which was her first big success and one of her most well-known plays to date. I love that play. I love that play. Go read that play. It's so funny. Also, go read that play. Um and so she is doing a little bit better. She's uh, She has a number of moderately successful plays. Um, and then she begins to move more staunchly in the direction of political satire. A lot of her plays are characterized by a very clear pro-Whig, anti-Tory sentiment. For those of you who don't know English politics, the Whig party is probably more like center-left. The Tory party would be a little bit more center-right. So... At least one of her pieces was partially censored by theater producers because of fear of backlash because of her political satire. Oh, you know you're doing something right if you're getting a little centered. Censored, oh, yeah. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. Yes. A little little censorship. So she wrote Bold Stroke for a Wife in 1718. It was her first true farce. And the only one of her plays of which she claimed complete ownership with no borrowed characters or plot lines, as was very common in the day. People were always you know, doing retellings of stories that had happened before. But Bold Stroke was the first play that she was like, this is mine. The story is all my own. Yes. Um, she fell sick in of some mysterious illness in 1719 and never fully recovered, although she did continue to write, especially poetry. She has a ton of poetry. And to this day, she's regarded as being remarkably liberal for her time, particularly with regards to women's rights to personal freedoms. We see this in Bold Stroke for a Wife in the way Anne Lovely is written and how the men, her male guardians ownership of or control of her financial estate is critiqued by Anne and Fainwell throughout the play. Um, That said, she was vehemently and outspokenly anti-catholic this is you know post church of england that's not an excuse but worth noting uh she died in 1723 and became posthumously known as the second women of the english theater uh afroben is usually referred to as the first women of english theater so susanna was the second um so yeah she was an extraordinarily prolific writer she wrote she wrote for over 20 years. She wrote three books and 19 plays and countless poems um, and, you know, was clearly not afraid of politics and being an outspoken woman of the age. She's really cool. And I love that she's earning the cash dollars, you know, it's like, honestly, yeah, we yes. love we love a practical woman. So there we are. I mean, we should all know more about this amazing woman. History. So now we have a scene from the play. This scene takes place about halfway through the play, and it takes place between Colonel Fainwell, our hero, read by the wonderful Jory Murphy, and one of Anne Lovely's weird guardians, Mr. Periwinkle, here read by the equally wonderful Andrew Hutchison. So in this scene, Fainwell has dressed up as this wild, eccentric world traveler slash antique collector in the hopes of impressing Periwinkle. And so he's pretending to have all these weird absolutely made up cultural artifacts and periwinkle is just 
eating it up. So it's basically just Fainwell messing with this weird guy. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's very silly. And we hope you enjoy. Take it away, Andrew and Jory. If you would sell this girdle, I might travel with great expedition. But it is not to be parted with for money. I'm sorry for it, sir, because I think it the greatest curiosity I ever heard of. By the advice of a learned physiognomist in Grand Cairo, who consulted the lines in my face, I returned to England, where he told me I should find a rarity in the keeping of four men, which I was born to possess for the benefit of mankind. And the first of the four that gave me his consent, I should present him with this girdle. Till I have found this jewel, I shall not part with the girdle. What can that rarity be? Did he not name it to you? Yes, sir. He called it a chaste, beautiful, unaffected woman. Pish! Women are no rarities. I never had any great taste that way. I married, indeed, to please a father, and I got a girl to please my wife, but she and the child, thank heaven, died together. Women are the very gewgaws of the creation, playthings for boys, which, when they write man, they ought to throw aside. What woman is there, dressed in all the pride and foppery of the times, can boast of such a foretop as the cockatoo? I must humor him. Such a skin as the lizard! Such a shining breast as the hummingbird! Such a shape as the antelope! Or... In all the artful mixture of their various dresses, have they half the beauty of one box of butterflies? No, that must be allowed. For my part, if it were not for the benefit of mankind, I'd have nothing to do with them, for they are as indifferent to me as a sparrow or a flesh fly. Pray, sir, what benefit is the world to reap from this lady? Why, sir, she is to bear me a son who shall... Restore the art of embalming, and the old Roman manner of burying their dead, and, for the benefit of posterity, he is to discover the longitude, so long sought for in vain. Ah, these are very valuable things, Mr. Sackbutt. Thank you so much for joining us for our Bold Stroke for a Wife edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. You can learn more at expandthecanon.com. And for info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or on Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or you can join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. Bonus, bonus, bonus. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Bitly slash hedgepig memberships. Once again, I'm Sky Pagan. And I'm Mary Candler. And we'll see you real soon. See you real soon. Someday I'll learn how to say goodbye on these, but today is not that day. <laughs>